Hey, it's Martine. We want to thank you, our Post Reports listeners, by offering you a special 50% discount on a digital subscription to The Washington Post. Enjoy unlimited access to our website and apps for less than a dollar a week. Sign up at postreports.com slash offer. Thanks for listening. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Ferrand from The Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 18th. Today, why governments rarely share intel about domestic terror, what we know about the Mueller investigation, and the national popular vote. On Monday, New Zealanders gathered at a vigil in Christchurch to honor the 50 Muslim worshippers killed in last week's massacre. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said that lawmakers are planning to introduce new gun laws. Within 10 days of this horrific act of terrorism, we will have announced reforms which will, I believe, make our communities safer. The shooting at Al Noor Mosque has been deemed an act of domestic terrorism, even though police believe that the shooter was radicalized over the internet by white nationalists from other parts of the world. Other countries, too, have sort of viewed this as a domestic problem for domestic law and domestic law enforcement to solve. Shane Harris covers national security and intelligence for The Post. New Zealand is part of an alliance of five countries that share information on international terrorists. But Shane says that doesn't apply to domestic terrorism. Among these different countries called the Five Eyes, the U.S., the U.K., Canada, New Zealand, Australia, that are very good at sharing information about foreign terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS, they're not talking about these domestic threats in their countries, which in some places are killing as many, if not more, people than Islamic terrorists are. Shane says that terrorists like the alleged gunman Brenton, Harris, and Tarrant are likely to have international connections. But finding those would require international cooperation. And that's something that we're seeing more of now is that these domestic groups, you know, nationalist extremists who, you know, historically have kind of been grown up in their own country, worked in their own country, done their things in their own country, are now finding each other in different countries via the Internet. The point is that they have common cause and common ideology, and they're finding a way to share that online. And the idea of being a white nationalist, being anti-immigrant, that is a thing that we're seeing in a lot of countries that doesn't necessarily depend on what country you're in to have the same trends and themes. Exactly. So in this country, you might find people you know, targeting their ire at Muslims, but also immigrants from Central America. You know, In Australia, you might find them targeting a different group. Obviously, in New Zealand, he focused his rage there on Muslims and on Muslim immigrants. So it's the idea of the invader, and they think that it is this invasion from the outside that is a threat to you know, the purity, in this case, of the white race and of the nation, as he conceived it, being you know, a white country. So from a law enforcement perspective, why is it important that 
the shooter is being treated as a domestic radical. Law enforcement agencies traditionally are the ones that handle, quote-unquote, domestic radical groups, or even what we might call domestic terrorism, although people debate whether or not there is such a thing sometimes as domestic terrorism. And there are good reasons for that. I mean, in the United States, we have a history of our intelligence agencies, like the CIA principally, getting involved in domestic matters, spying on Americans, spying on war protesters, things that are constitutionally protected. So we've kind of walled them off and said, CIA, you focus on foreign threats. FBI, you handle the domestic. And you do that within the context of the Constitution and our laws and our privacy regulations and all those things that constrain what government can do to monitor people. And that, I think, worked pretty well up until you get to the internet age when these groups in different countries are finding each other online. They're forming something it looks much more like an international organization. So why does it make a difference that these white nationalist groups are being treated as domestic terrorists rather than as international terrorists? One reason it makes a difference is that as they start to communicate with each other and are sharing information and are radicalizing each other, are reinforcing each other, and they're doing it regardless of boundaries, the system that's set up to share intelligence and information very quickly and very efficiently about foreign terrorist groups, your al-Qaeda's, your ISIS's, it's not really paying attention to these domestic groups. You're not seeing information flowing among these countries. And some officials who I've talked to think that there should be, that this is a, you know, a threat that while it is domestic in nature for now, it is clearly evolving into how having an international kind of posture, an organization that's looking a lot more like ISIS and al-Qaeda do. So in this case, for the New Zealand shooting, is there a world in which if this guy sort of was on an international radar, that this shooting could have been prevented? Potentially, there would have been intelligence about him that could have been gleaned from other countries, right? I mean, he's an Australian citizen. He's in New Zealand. If he had traveled, if he had engaged in this kind of rhetoric, maybe in, you know, chat rooms or platforms that were being monitored, you could imagine how information about him could have been shared among various partners because that infrastructure exists. So it's possible that if more was known about this. Now, the chances that the United States is going to know more about a domestic operator in New Zealand than New Zealand authorities do is pretty low. But one thing the United States also might be able to share is to say, hey, look, there are groups we are monitoring that we observe the following trends. Here's the things they're talking about. Here's how they're reaching out to each other. Here are the places they're congregating, places like 8chan. These kind of more meta-level observations could also potentially be useful for other countries as they start saying, yeah, we're seeing this here too. Maybe there's a trend. Maybe we should be looking over here to find more information about groups that are operating in New Zealand the same way they might be operating in Canada. What is the actual chance that that would happen? that it would change to include that? I think if the people at the working level, the professionals, the counterterrorism officials, intelligence people, and law enforcement too were sort of in charge of this, they could probably figure out a way to do exactly what you're talking about, particularly on the question of how do people become radicalized. And you could imagine them taking this existing structure that's built largely for sharing foreign intelligence and starting to kind of put more of that, quote unquote, domestic, which is really international conversation into that pipeline. Now, you'd have to adjust and, and, and find ways to not violate you know, privacy restrictions and rules, but it could be done. You could imagine getting over those obstacles. On a practical level, however, it seems unlikely in the United States, at least, given the fact that the president 
who ultimately is in charge of our intelligence and law enforcement apparatus, doesn't believe that there's a problem. And so if there's no incentive, in fact, if there's a counter incentive coming from the White House, which is to say the president, as he said over the weekend, does not believe that white nationalism is a problem. It's just these kind of isolated one-offs. I don't really. I think it's a uh, small group of people that have very, very serious problems. I guess if you look at what happened in New Zealand, perhaps that's a case. I don't know enough about it yet. And President Trump doesn't seem to be interested in doing that right now. Very much not interested. I mean, he seems to be avoiding this as a political and a policy issue. And, you know, again, as he said this weekend, resisting the idea that it's a growing threat, which it it very clearly and obviously is. Shane Harris is a national security and intelligence reporter for The Post. Look, I'm going to wait for the Mueller report. As we wait for the Mueller report. Put it all out there. How about don't redact anything? As the nation waits for Robert Mueller to deliver his report on Russian influence in the 2016... Lately, it seems like all of Washington is on the edge of their seats, waiting for the report from special counsel Robert Mueller. The reality is no one knows anything about what the report is going to say or even what it's going to look like or how long it's going to be. We're like really in the dark on that. Will the report show that the Trump campaign coordinated with Russia? We just don't know. The sense is that now that the Mueller probe is wrapping up, there won't be any more big indictments. We don't actually know for a fact that that's the case. It's also possible that the report could be more of a summary of what the investigation has already accomplished rather than a big reveal of new information. I just can't stress enough how much we just don't know what the report is going to look like. Since we really can't know exactly what's coming, we wanted to get a sense of what we do know. So we went to our in-house Mueller expert. I'm Rosalind Helderman. I'm an investigative reporter for the national political staff. And these days I mostly cover Donald Trump and Russia. Roz has been reporting on this for nearly two years, and she says there's actually a lot that we can say about how the special counsel's team has spent their time. They've been really productive in ways that are public to us. So they've indicted 34 people. I believe six of them are associates and aides of Donald Trump. There's also a whole bunch of Russians who have been indicted. And you can sort of think of it in kind of two camps. On the one hand, Mueller has laid out really in a lot of new detail that we didn't have before exactly how the Russian government went about this attack on the presidential election. So he had two big indictments just of Russians. One of them was a hacking indictment where he actually named the Russian military intelligence officers who were responsible for hacking the Democratic National Committee and John Podesta and then releasing their emails through WikiLeaks. And then he had this social media indictment where he talked about the troll farm and how the Russian trolls use social media and other online tools to divide Americans and support Donald Trump and hurt the campaign of Hillary Clinton. 
So that's the Russian side of the house. But what about Americans? Yeah, so that gets more complicated. So he's indicted a variety of Americans for different things, a lot for lying to him and to Congress about Russia. Also, you had Paul Manafort and his deputy, Rick Gates, who were indicted for a variety of financial fraud, but mostly related to work they did in Ukraine before going to work for the Trump campaign. And you had George Papadopoulos and Michael Flynn and Michael Cohen, all of whom were indicted for lying and pled guilty to lying about Russia. And so the big question is, there's this American side of the house and this Russian side of the house. And the question is, is there a connection between them? Is there a place where Americans, Trump associates, the Trump campaign, worked with Russians while they were interfering with the election to help their efforts. And he hasn't indicted anyone for that. And that remains the big question mark. But just because no one has been indicted for criminally coordinating with Russia doesn't mean that there aren't connections there. There have been a lot of details revealed in his work where people were criminally indicted for doing other things that showed contact with Russia and a variety of sort of connections that we didn't know about at the time of the campaign that perhaps don't rise to the level of criminal behavior, but are things that people probably would have liked to know about at the time of the campaign and were hidden until Mueller uncovered them. And like a good example is... Donald Trump during the campaign insisted he had no business in Russia. And what we have learned during the course of this investigation is while he was publicly saying that, the Trump organization was very actively pursuing building a Trump Tower that would be probably the most lucrative project the Trump organization had ever pursued in Moscow at that very time. And so that's relevant. It's something we would have liked to know at the time of the campaign. But perhaps it does not rise to the level of criminal conspiracy to interfere in the election. Well, those kinds of details about a connection to Russia, even if it is not a criminal connection, is there an expectation that those kinds of details could still appear in the Mueller report, even if ultimately Mueller says, like, this probably wasn't a crime or you probably wouldn't be able to prosecute this as a crime? The regulations that guide the work of the special counsel require that at the close of the investigation, he submits a confidential report to the attorney general outlining the charging and declination decisions of the office. So basically, who did they decide to charge and why? Who did they decline to charge and why? Mm -hmm. So that's what the regulations call for. But there's obviously like a lot of room for sort of choice in terms of how much information you lay out in the course of doing that. It could be short, it could be long, particularly when it gets to explaining why you declined to charge people. Whether you go into detail in that or not. Exactly, about everything you investigated and what you found and why it was that you ultimately decided that was not a crime. Even if he does that, there is the secondary question of whether or not we, the public, will see that. Typically speaking, At the Department of Justice, they don't lay out information about all the investigations they did of people that they decided not to charge with crimes. That's considered unfair to people. It's sort of one of their basic guiding principles that, you know, you don't speak ill of someone that you didn't choose to charge. It's one of the reasons why what FBI Director James Comey did during the 2016 election as with regards to Hillary Clinton was so very controversial. I see evidence of great carelessness. But I do not see evidence that is sufficient to establish that Secretary Clinton or those with whom she was corresponding both talked about classified information on email and knew when they did it, they were doing something that was against the law. 
And so there is a strong feeling in some corners of federal law enforcement that if Bob Mueller writes a long description of all the stuff he investigated that didn't turn into crimes, that should be kept confidential. And when you say kept confidential, would those kinds of details eventually at least have to be shared with members of Congress? So there's going to be a fight about this. Uh, What the regulations say is that Mueller will give a confidential report to the attorney general. And then the regulations also call for the attorney general to give a report to Congress. And there's no guarantee that those two things are identical. What Bill Barr said during his confirmation hearings. Will you commit to making any report Mueller produces at the conclusion of his investigation available to Congress and to the public? As as I said in my statement, I am going to make as much information available as I can consistent with the rules and regulations that are part of the special counsel regulations. He also talked about the sort of tradition at the Department of Justice to not reveal derogatory information about people who are not being charged with crimes. If you're not going to indict someone, then you don't stand up there and unload negative information about the person. That's not the way the Department of Justice does business. So, you know, we're going to have to see what Barr submits to Congress, if we can tell how closely that echoes what he had received initially from Bob Mueller. And then what will happen is that Democrats in Congress will ask for more. Pretty much anything he turns over, they're going to want more. They're going to certainly want the Mueller report itself, not just the bar summary of that report. And they're going to want investigative materials, interview notes, documents that were subpoenaed. They're going to want everything. And if that happens, I think that there is a real concern among Republicans that whatever Democrats get their hands on, even if it is, quote unquote, confidential or only supposed to be shared with lawmakers themselves, that that'll eventually get leaked to the public. Yeah, or just made public. I mean, there is a precedent here with the Clinton email investigation. We want the documents that the inspector general has. He's got 1.2 million documents so far. The investigation was closed, and then the Republicans in Congress demanded lots and lots of inside investigative documents related to the investigation. Well, they should hand it over to us in digital form, and they should handle it, hand it over to us unredacted uh, so that we can see uh, the exact communications that took place and not have to guess a lot of these things or go over to the department and examine documents. And in fact, received it. So they got what are called 302s, which is the form an FBI agent fills out after he conducts an interview. They have a certain form and rhythm and they look a certain way. They got 302s from all kinds of people, Hillary Clinton, Huma Abedin, Cheryl Mills, all these major players, and they just made them public. They were redacted somewhat, but they were just made public. And so, you know, there would be these stories where people would pour through those documents and find embarrassing, bad-sounding admissions that people made in those interviews that ultimately the Department of Justice did not decide to charge crimes about and make hay of them or argue that they should have been charged with crimes. And so, you know, you could certainly see something parallel here. And I can imagine that's something that the Department of Justice is thinking about as they're thinking about how this report is going to be shared and with whom, that maybe that's something that they don't want to have happen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And maybe having some thoughts about whether it had been smart to do it in other instances. 
I mean, if you think about this investigation, there were hundreds of interviews done. I don't know everything they did, but I feel confident in saying that, that the amount of interviews they did of people we didn't even know spoke to the special counsel's office, the amount of documents they gathered must be just astoundingly high. And, you know, to just turn those over to the public and let the public scroll through them to try to figure out whether the special counsel went awry and whether they made the right decisions. It's very intrusive to people's privacy, and it will be interesting to see what happens here. Roz Helderman is an investigative reporter for The Post. Before we go, one more thing. An effort to make the Electoral College more popular. So this weekend, Governor Jared Polis signed a measure into law that made it so that Colorado will join a group of states that will give their Electoral College votes to the person who wins the national popular vote. Deanna Paul has been reporting on this new measure that's been gaining steam in states across the country. It's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And it could change how the U.S. picks the president. As is, each state has the ability to determine what to do with their electoral college votes. And what we've ended up seeing over time is that most states have a winner-takes-all system. Meaning that those states give all their electoral votes to the presidential candidate that wins the vote in their state. Because most states do lean primarily Democrat or Republican, presidential candidates in their campaigns look at a very few number of states. And so 80 percent of The popular vote isn't really applicable in terms of who wins the actual election. Some of the swing states that we see commonly are Pennsylvania and Florida, Ohio. In the last election, Michigan and Wisconsin were big deals. And CNN projects Donald Trump will carry the state of Florida. Donald Trump has won the state of Ohio. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is a group of states that have all joined in and pledged to give their state's electoral college votes to the National Popular Vote winner. That means that states who change their laws and sign on to the compact are agreeing that all their electoral votes will go to the candidate who won the national popular vote. Advocates say it would make the whole process more democratic by taking the focus of presidential campaigns away from a few battleground states. Basically, it's a hack to make the electoral college irrelevant without changing the Constitution. But it's not happening yet, if at all. The compact only goes into effect once the total number of electoral votes from states that have changed their laws reaches 270, the number required to become president. Right now, the interstate compact with Colorado, it's the 12th state and Washington, D.C., bringing it to 181 electoral college votes. Right now, they have only Democrat-leaning states. And with a Republican president in office, it seems less likely that Republican states are going to be willing to join into the compact before the 2020 election. Deanna says that even if it might not pass, it represents people taking the vote back into their own hands. In the last election, we saw President Trump win the Electoral College votes, but in fact, he didn't win the national popular vote. And remember, I did win more than three million votes than my opponent. So, And his election wasn't the only one that we've seen that in. I think there's five presidents that have been elected not having won the national popular vote. There's 40 states that their electoral college votes don't really determine the election, and everybody wants to feel like their vote counts. 
Deanna Paul is a reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 